I can make a Wikipedia. Yeah, dude. Is I that, think, isn't that how it works? <laughs> I think mine says like my Wikipedia page says like warning. This looks like it was made from a close friend or the user himself. So like take it with a grain of salt, which is super embarrassing. But uh, what are you gonna do? Yeah, fifty k follow. It does. Good. It does. I just pulled it up. It says a major contributor to this article appears to have a close connection with its subject. <laughs> That's like the biggest exposing ever, dude. It's like this person's so arrogant that they just made it themselves. I swear to God, I didn't make that myself, but I think a fan might have made it. So I think at one, at one point in, the, in my old, like when it first got made, it was like the girl that made it was like, and his favorite fan, like Emma, made the account. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What is up, guys? You are about to listen to an episode with Noah Khan that was originally released in 2019. Noah Khan is a singer, songwriter, who has exploded in the past year with hits like Stick Season and Drunk Dial featuring Post Malone. He is one of my favorite artists, and back in 2019, I got the chance to have Noah on the podcast right when he was releasing his debut album, Busy Head. It was a hell of a conversation. We spoke about music, therapy, dating, and I walked away from that chat thinking not only is Noah a great artist, but he also seems like a cool dude. Fast forward to 2023, and there are a lot of people whispering. This isn't me saying this, by the way, but people are whispering. They're saying things like, hey, did you hear Noah went on the Oxoro podcast a few years back and now he's an international superstar? Dude, I heard the same thing. He went on the Oxoro pod, had one chat with Zach, and a few years later, he's one of the biggest goddamn names in music. Now, again, it's not me saying this, but I hear the whispers. People seem to think, that me having Noah on the podcast is somehow directly linked to his massive rise in popularity, and I can neither confirm nor deny that. Is it Noah Khan's talent, insane dedication to the craft, and his creativity that opened the gate into the land of superstardom and Post Malone collabs? Or was it coming on a podcast which at the time had no less than 200 listeners? It's hard to say. I'm hearing whispers about the Oxoro bump, but there's also an outside chance that Noah himself had something to do with it. Speaking of bumps, do you miss cocaine? I mean, really, do you miss turning on the weekend, dimming those hue lights, and vacuuming a crisp line off a MacBook Pro before engaging in a four-hour conversation about a business that you're never going to start? I've been there. I can't offer you cocaine, but what I can offer is something better, and that's Oxoro Premium. On Auxoro Premium, you gain access to bonus episodes of the Auxoro Podcast, where things get extra rowdy behind the paywall. You also get subscriber-only AMAs where you can ask me anything. On the last AMA, someone asked me if I ever committed a murder, and well, that's for premium ears only. You also get the ability to become part of the show by suggesting topics and questions for guests like Noah Khan. If you want to rip a line of Auxoro Premium and feel that sweet, sweet goodness pumping through your veins without the next day anxiety blast, head to auxoro.supercast.com today. That's auxoro.supercast.com for bonus episodes and more exclusive access. Unlike cocaine, Auxoro Premium is non-habit-forming, but you will have a good time. There is over 40 hours of bonus content currently available on auxoro.supercast.com, and it grows every month. Come join the premium gang and sign up for Auxoro Premium today. Now, back to Noah Khan. 
Like I said, I had Noah on the podcast back in 2019. I had a lot fewer listeners back then, so if you've subscribed in the last couple years, there's a good chance you missed that episode. I wanted to re-release it to get it back out there to everyone who tunes into the pod, and what better time to do that than when Noah is taking over the industry. It's very cool to see. I'd love to have him back on the podcast. He's also amazing live. I got the chance to see him at an intimate venue in New York City where some girl that was on Molly was disrupting the performance and she got kicked out. But that's besides the point. It was a great show. So if you have the chance to see him, please do. And without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive with Noah Khan. I was reading that you are a big fan of The Office. I'm a huge, huge fan of The Office. So the quote that I pulled out here is from Michael Scott. And he says that, I would say I have kind of an unfair advantage because I watch reality dating shows like a hawk. And I learn, I absorb information from the strategies of the winners and losers. Actually, I probably learn more from the losers. So going (laughs) off... From this quote from Michael Scott about dating, what would you say your approach is like to the first date? First date, like in like going on a date with another girl, what would my approach be? Yeah, what would your approach be? Huh? I think humor has always been my thing. I, I look kind of ugly. I got kind of an ugly face vibe going on, so I have to kind of like overcompensate with a sense of humor and kind of self-deprecation is usually my go-to. I think I usually try to make the person laugh, make them feel comfortable. I think nowadays people going on dates just want to feel comfortable and don't want to feel like there's any pressure. So I kind of just try to take the pressure off by being funny and making fun of myself usually. Otherwise, I'll try to wear like a Henley. Usually if that doesn't do the trick, then you know that's kind of that's my last resort. Henley tees are a good go-to because it's not super formal, but it makes you feel like you're dressing up more than normal. It's like I, I'm showing up to the table. I'm putting forth my effort. Right. I'm not here's putting my, in too here's much. Here's my Henley too. Yeah. I don't want you to think I care too much right off the bat. Right. But here's uh-huh. my Henley. This is the this is only the second shirt I've worn this week and it's Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My goal with dressing up is I don't want to be picked out of a lineup. I don't want anyone to be like, oh man, that guy's really going for something. I just want it to be like, all right, white guy, white guy, white guy, white guy. You know, I don't I don't want to have people be like, I don't want to be making any statements. I just want to look like yeah. passable. You know what I mean? When you're on tour is clothing a front item in your mind? Do you put a lot into how you're presenting yourself to the crowd beyond music or is the wardrobe kind of just whatever you're feeling that day? It doesn't really change much from at home. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, it's like an elevated version of what I usually wear. It's like, you know, like solid color jean jacket. I look like every other acoustic guitar guy, but I've been thinking like it would be kind of cool to like have like a signature style, you know, like Johnny Cash was in black and yes. Amy Winehouse was in black and superstars wear crazy things and Khalid has super cool vibes. But I just, I don't know, man. I'm like super insecure about my clothing because I've never been somebody who's taken any risks. So I kind of just try to play it safe. But I'm thinking as my confidence grows, I might start wearing some different colors. Maybe go for like a plaid or like a or like a jean tuxedo kind of thing. I don't know, man. I, I want to make a statement. I need some ideas. I actually just bought my first pair of of denim clothing besides the pants. I'd never worn any vests or or long sleeve denim any anything like that I actually just bought a wrangler denim vest because i just thought you know in my head i I imagined the outfit that i was going to wear and i said you know i might not be able to pull this off 
but I'm going to rock it to my friend's birthday this Saturday. Oh, we'll to make a statement at the birthday party, yeah, dude. Exactly. Well, that's I, what, I, yeah. I'm going to put the Henley in the back of the closet, pull out the, the denim jacket for Saturday. Good for you, man. You know, taking risks. And what's great is about wearing denim for the first time is that you can kind of just wear it every day afterwards. You'll get the confidence. People will be like, oh, man, sweet. That's a bold choice. And then you'll be like, oh, cool. The confidence will be there. And then you'll just be able to have something you can wear every day now. Because I find myself being like, I only wear clothes that I know look good. Like, I don't like to take any risks. But once you take that first risk, then you can just wear it again and again. It's great. Yeah. And you mentioned the the insecurities before. I feel like that's part of trying anything new. It could be clothing. It could be music. It could be podcasting, whatever. It could be any sort of passionate pursuit. But the first time you do something and you're trying to make a, a trend for yourself or, or build an image for yourself, you have no idea whether it's going to work or not. So just as a byproduct of that pursuit, it's kind of hard to get away from the insecurity at first until it becomes your thing. Right. And I think that it's important to be... I think that insecurity is actually kind of plays in your favor because you go in with a lot of care and you're paying a lot of attention and you're making sure things are right. And then once you get over the insecurity, you know that it's never going to be as bad as that first time again. And uh, that way you can actually start to grow and develop and uh, make progress. And you've gotten over kind of the fear of the fear of diving into things, um, which I'm, yeah, right. And clothing and music and conversation and, and athletics um, and anything, uh, a little bit of insecurity can be a good thing for you. Yeah. I think it helps too to to point out the awkwardness. There would be so many times earlier in my life, but probably high school, even even back in middle school, where I would feel super awkward. And it could be conversations. It, it could be... I used to play the saxophone in, in high school and it get anything. I, I would feel insecure about putting myself out there. And then lately, probably within the past two or three years, I feel like pointing out those insecurities in the middle of the conversation or whatever it is kind of diffuses them. Like if you say something, you're like, wow, that did not go over well at all. <laughs> and it's just right. like... And it's not as bad as it, as it seems in your head. And when especially, that's, a, that's a great thing. That's a kind of a common trend in therapy is a speaking your fears into existence can almost eliminate them and, or make them seem less scary because uh, you kind of compartmentalize things and things build and you perseverate and it seems worse than it really is. And then you can be like, oh man, that was bad. Or I look weird today. And it just doesn't seem as, it doesn't seem as hard when you speak it into existence yeah. for sure. Do you go to therapy sessions on a regular basis? Yeah, I do as much as I can. You know, it's, it's hard around in a, such a small town to find a consistent therapy, but I do make you know, maximum effort to see somebody as much as I can whenever I'm home, at least once every couple of weeks. And if I have more time, then I'll, I'll go once or twice a week. Um, I've been going to therapy since I was maybe 10 or 11 years old. So it's been a big part of my life and it's something that's just normal to me. Um, and I, th- I recommend it to anybody, uh, whether or not you struggle with mental illness, just being able to talk about things to somebody, to an unbiased source is, uh, is really valuable. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm curious about what therapy is like because... I could see myself going to therapy in the future. And like you said, it, it could be something that's useful to anybody, not only people struggling with mental health issues. But for me, this podcast is kind of like a form of therapy. And since I've been doing it, I realize how much talking through your emotions and how much talking to people can actually enhance your relationships and enhance the conversations that you're having and, and open yourself up. And I. I was never having these long form conversations on a regular basis. I was always kind of that shy kid that kept to himself, was afraid to question authority, all these things like that. So I, I think therapy could definitely be something that I visit down the line. Right. And I think, I mean, you have an amazing outlet right now where you're able to, you know, speak 
to somebody else, honestly, which is basically what therapy is. You know, it's not some doctor who's judging you and writing things in a notebook. They're just talking to you. And for the most part, they're just talking to you and you're able to talk about whatever you want. And it doesn't have to be bad things. It doesn't have to be anything you're afraid of. You can just chat. And I think that just talking is and having a dialogue uh, about what's going on with you is, is so important. And it's something that I recommend, like I said, to, to anybody who feels like they have stuff they're keeping inside. And I think that everybody can relate to that. So absolutely, man. If you feel comfortable talking about it, are there any sort of tips or, or techniques from therapy sessions that you use on a daily basis or, th- or things that have stuck with you through the, through the long run? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think first and foremost, like we talked about earlier, is acknowledging your fears and tracing these thought patterns that lead to these fears and speaking them into existence to a kind of check to see if they're actually really rational. A lot of times we we consume ourselves with worry about possible situations and we catastrophize the worst possible scenario. And and, and if you just take a second to think about things logically and realistically um, and rationally, um, you know, a lot of these fears subside. And uh, if you kind of can articulate what you're, what's going on in your brain into word or into writing, then like we said earlier, it becomes less scary. Also, meditation has been important. And meditation sounds, you know, people kind of, kind of cock their heads at that and think, oh, it sounds like pseudoscience or it sounds like some crazy, like, like almost like Far East idea. When really realistically, it's just breathing, controlling your thoughts, maintaining your thoughts, giving yourself a second to ground yourself to one activity and that's letting breath in and, and then releasing the breath. So meditation has been fantastic. Athletics, diet. I think eating well is important to feeling well. I think working out, uh, at least for me, can release serotonin, uh, which I find myself lacking so much uh, in my life. So those are four things I recommend to, to people that you also don't need to go to therapy for necessarily. You can try it yourself at home, but I think having a therapist guide you through that is uh, important as well. Well, one of those things that I have tried myself at home for the past year now has been meditation. I actually discovered the form of meditation that I use now, which is referred to as mindfulness. I think different areas of the world have different terms and concepts for that. But I was introduced to it through Sam Harris. I don't know if you've listened to Sam Harris or heard his podcast before. I'm not sure I have, no. He's a neuroscientist and he's a philosopher and he he has a podcast called Making Sense. And in that podcast, he talks a lot about meditation. He actually released an app called Waking Up that I use every day, actually, 10 minutes a day. It kind of gives you these daily meditations that you can go to. And the first time I tried it was about a year ago and it sucked because I'd I'd never, like it was fucking horrible because I'd never tried to sit there with my own thoughts. And I thought going into it that your goal was to try to think about nothing. Like I was imagining a circle and then just trying to keep my thoughts in that circle. And then any thought that flooded into my brain, I would judge myself and and think like, wow, you came and sit here for five minutes and think about nothing. You're you're yeah. fucking you're a disgraceful human being. But then I learned that meditation is more about using your senses, your hearing, your vision, your your sight to observe what's going on in the moment and kind of observe your thoughts as a third party to your own brain, which kind of blew my mind. And yeah, when you when you brought up meditation, that just made me think of how much better I've gotten. I'm still getting better at it, but staying in the moment and not really worrying about the past and the future, kind of like like embracing the moment for all it is. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's a very common story. The same thing happened to me. You know, you're just like judging yourself for not being perfect at not thinking about anything. And it's impossible to start right away and be perfect at it, especially if you're constantly, you know, anxious and thinking about things. It's hard to jump right into this idea of just grounding your thoughts. But the more you do it, the better you get and the better you'll feel. And, um, you know, you can start to apply that in real life, just training your thoughts and, and making sure you ground yourself. So yeah, I told that's a, that's a very common story. And, Mindfulness is a great is a great form of meditation. I recommend it to everybody. Yeah. What does your practice look like? I just do. I have. There's a couple little mantras I have, and I just kind of repeat those in my head while I deep breathe and really focusing on grounding myself to those sentences and just trying to force myself to stay in the moment and and not judging myself or seeing it as a failure if I can't immediately do that. It's a big part of my kind of meditation is just giving myself freedom to fuck it up a little bit and. Um, and doing that, it takes the pressure off. So yeah, just similar to yours, it's all a lot of mindfulness stuff and deep breathing kind of exercises and keeping my body still. Speaking of the pressure, I've heard you talk about in the past how becoming a, a music artist in the public eye has opened you up to criticism, both positive and negative. Is there a piece of criticism that has rocked you the most where you kind of looked at it and thought like, wow, like this really fucking sucks to handle right now or, or something that stands out in your mind as a, a piece of criticism that was hard to get through. Yeah. I mean, the thing with the criticism is that word sounds that when you say criticism, I, I think of something constructive or something, someone having a critique or an idea of what my music should be like. A lot of the times what really bothers me is just the unnecessary kind of hatred that comes from a lot of online online commenting and I, I just I see every notification I get. I'm not like I'm not Ariana Grande. Like I can see I don't I get like 30 comments on a post. So when someone's Wait, commenting, I thought like, I was talking to Ariana Grande. I know, I know. This podcast the, is over. Listen, the voices the voice <laughs> voices we have similar like similar candor to our voices. Um you do. You're in similar ranges. I'm like the Jewish Ariana Grande. I've been told that before. <laughs> That's what I've heard. You, I, well, you usually introduce yourself as the the Jewish Ed Sheeran, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'm happy to switch over to Ariana Grande. <laughs> you should just you should say I'm the Jewish Ariana Grande for your next performance, just to set the the bar completely off kilter and just leave people confused as fuck. Yeah, I'm like Ariana Grande if she never discovered her talent for music and uh, worked <laughs> on like a farm or something. Yeah, so I, I just, it's when people are just like kind of hating unnecessarily and are like, you fucking suck. You're like using kind of like bigoted, homophobic sometimes language. Or I think that stuff's really, it's just bullshit. Like there's, there's nothing you can learn from that. And that's the stuff that really bothers me the most is kind of people that go out of their way to, to hate me. I've gotten death threats before, which is just fucking crazy. I make like the most inoffensive music ever, dude. So when people are like, Shh, people are giving me death threats for, for a song about, Anxiety. I think it's really ridiculous, but I think the criticism that uh, affects me most and changes the way I approach music the most is is from respected artists um, who you know will tell me how they feel about the songs, and I really respect the opinions of songwriters and producers in the industry because you know they're so gifted at the craft. So that kind of thing is is uh, what I take more into account. Although a lot of this the unnecessary hatred is is just useless to me and, and lame as fuck to me. Yeah, criticism was probably. The wrong word. Hatred is a better word because criticism can be constructive and often is most of the time. But it, it blows my mind that what you said about the death threats, because if you are a person that's listening to a music artist, you know that they've put in, you know, hundreds and thousands of hours to their work in their lives. And 
they're pouring their soul out into this song that is helping a lot of people get through similar experiences. So to want to wish someone that ill will to say like, yo, dude, I hope you fucking die or whatever. Like that there's something, there's such like a disconnect with that person. I can't even yeah. begin to understand yeah. how you would wish that. Like I even understand wanting to, you know, if you really hated someone like, oh, I, I hope, you know, you don't do well in music, fine. But like to wish someone's right. life to come to an end, that's so disconnected and crazy to me. Yeah, for me, it's like, if you're going to say like, you hate the song or like the chorus, the chorus fucking sucks, dude. That's all right. Like, at least you had like a critique and at least I know you listen to the song. When it's just like, I hate you. It's like, okay, well, dude, you don't even know me, bro. I'm playing three chords in the song. I'm not giving anything else away, man. Like, come yeah. talk to, have, a, have a dialogue. I mean, I also try to like, put myself into the shoes of somebody like on YouTube at like 3 a.m. commenting on some guy calling him, calling him gay or whatever it is they're calling me or making fun of me. I try to think about like what that dude's life is and I end up just feeling like way worse for the person commenting than I do for myself for having received the criticism. Because you got to be such a, like a dick and have such a shitty life to like be wishing someone death online that you don't even know. Like, I wonder what you wish on yourself. You know, I almost feel bad for those kind of people. If they're wishing death on some indie songwriter from Vermont, then they must be hating themselves. They're hating the people around them. I feel like those dudes always have really girly usernames, but then in reality, it's like some 40-year-old dude in Serbia sitting in a computer chair that just finished masturbating and is like eating eating yeah. potato <laughs> chips. Just like, from he's just, like, just like a Serbian dude covered in cum just eating Doritos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah dude, I get that shit all the time. It'll be like, some dude would be like, dude, I want to fucking like bury you alive and like have the rats eat you and like fuck you. And then I'll go to his, his like Facebook profile and be like loving father of four yeah. children. Like it'll be him in like a red socks hat yeah. like with his kids. I'm like, damn, dude, like your kids know that you're fucking wishing some dude on, on Facebook to die, bro. Like, yeah. you know, like it'll be like, like his latest pictures of him like, dropping his yeah. daughter Susie off at church and at yeah. a PTA meeting. <laughs> Live streaming. Yeah, like loving Christian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> loving Christian who just wished for me to die. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's it's funny to see, man. If you dig, if you think about it, like if the words hurt, but if you like think about it a little bit, it's like, damn, these people are miserable. You just gotta not focus. You just gotta you gotta you gotta put it in perspective. Like if I'm ever doing that kind of shit, I'm gonna be super miserable. Yeah. So these people must be pretty miserable to be doing it. Yeah, the wor- world is crazy. Yeah, dude. Too many people are allowed to talk, bro. Too many people have their opinions out there, man. So people just need to not like well, that, that's the really, thing. You know I mean? like, we have a Twitter and, and Instagram. Social media as a whole is just it just allows everyone to essentially create their own show. Like this is my show, yeah. <laughs> and I can comment and do whatever I want without retribution. I know there are some guidelines on social media. Like if you incite violence directly against someone, which is illegal in the United States, and in, in terms of the, the First Amendment, you're, it's supposed to get taken down. So if you're saying like, I fucking, like, you should go kill Noah Khan, that should get taken down. But you're allowed to say hateful things and say whatever you want. And I think in a messed up way, that's a good thing because I, I think by process of elimination, the best way to kind of, sunlight is the best disinfectant. So like if you get someone's opinion out in the open and you give them a platform, then people for the most part will see how fucking crazy and how hateful this person is. And then they also have the responsibility of dealing with that. So you can say something hateful towards someone, even though it's not against the law, but then you also have to deal with the repercussions of people not wanting to buy things from your business anymore or not want to work with you. And so it's kind of like this, this give and take. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think that I think the thing with social media is that it just it kind of shines light on the most extreme opinions. I think most people like I don't I have never once heard a song and then been like, fuck that artist for that song. It's usually just like, okay, like I don't like that song, whatever, I'm not gonna say anything. Social media kind of highlights people's really extreme opinions about things. And I don't think you should, you have to take them with a grain of salt. I don't really believe anything I see on Facebook or Instagram. I just kind of form my own opinions and do my thing. And you can't let these extreme, extremely one-sided opinions of you or your music or of anything in general kind of shake the way you feel. Cause that's not, it's not the reality of the kind of the social consciousness, which is I think pretty laissez-faire when it comes to their opinions on music and, and stuff like that. So yeah, I don't, I don't buy into the social media opinions too much, but it, it, it is hurtful to see people, see people hating on you. It just sucks. You like, there's no reason for it. It's the same thing as like I think any person would be would feel offended if someone came up on the street to them and said, "Fuck you, I want you to die." But in that situation, there's some repercussion, and on social media, there's just nothing you can do besides move on, block the person, or whatever. So it can be harder. Yeah, I always have to remind myself that the loudest voices on Twitter, for example, are not representative of public opinion. And I, I actually just read an article. I think it was by the Pew Research Center, but it it said something along the lines of. of users on Twitter create 80% of the tweets. So most, most people are just scrolling. Whether they have positive or negative opinions, most people are just scrolling. And then most users, 80% of Twitter users are between 18 and 25 years old. So I may be getting that wrong. So I'll include the, the link to the actual research in the, in the description, but it's something around there. And, you just have to yeah, basically remind yourself that the most prominent opinions on Twitter or Instagram, wherever they are, are skewed heavily towards a certain demographic and are not necessarily how everyone feels. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's just, it's just not real, dude. It's not real. Like there's opinions out there that are being shared on Twitter and Instagram that are just, yeah, like you said, it's just, it's just the same people giving opinions and the same people are seeing it's like an echo chamber a little bit. So you got to, you just have to yeah. be able to separate that reality from the reality of the world, which is people have different opinions. Most people aren't pieces of shit. Most people aren't completely good and most people aren't completely bad. And I think that's the problem with social media is it makes it seem like a divide of like, these are the bad people and these are the good people. Mm-hmm. And in real life, it never seems that clear to me. I never see it like that. You know, I never see good and bad. I see people that have different sides to them. And I think that there's not enough of that three-dimensional, that's not going to be a word, three-dimensionalism. Mm-hmm. Damn, that was a sick word. That's right. On Twitter that it there is in real good. life. Three-dimensionalism is a great word, man. That's my next record title for sure. Three, I'm a three-dimensionalist now <laughs> after hearing that. <laughs> I just converted you, brother. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah, all it took. Totally, man. That's, that's, that's the vibe. It's no, one, this, no one opinion is right and no one person is good or bad, I don't think. Do you take social media fasts? I try, dude. I try to. It's so embarrassing. I like The other night, I was like smoking weed and I was like, fuck this, dude. I'm on Instagram all the time. I'm just scrolling mindlessly. And so I deleted it. And then like, I got into an Uber and I had like five minutes of time where I just didn't have anything to do. And I freaked out and downloaded it again. I was like, oh my God, I can't do that. I'm so addicted to it, man. It sucks. Like I try to have fasts, but and when I'm home, I kind of just take a break. But the problem is like so much of your career now depends on your activity on social media. And like people will literally like buy tickets to see you if more people will buy tickets to see you if you're like posting yeah. more and shit, which kind of sucks because I don't really navigate that world very well. So I try to just be natural with it. Yeah, you have a you have a pretty good following. I think you have fifty k, fifty k plus. It's good. Balling man. out with balling out with that check mark. 
Dude, yeah, blue checkmark status, dude, you know? Just speaking down to the rest of the civilians, man. You know, us blue checkmark folks are the, the upper echelon of society. So you got to... I know. I'm surprised you <laughs> took this interview. <laughs> yeah. Uh, dude, you, oh, you don't know the blue checkmark? Oh, no, shit. Dude, Wikipedia, fucked. bro? Oh, God. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Dude, I, can make a, I can make a Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, dude. Isn't, I that, think, isn't that how it works? <laughs> I think mine says, like, my Wikipedia page says, like, Warning, this looks like it was made from a close friend or the user himself. So like take it with a grain of salt, which is super embarrassing. But uh, what are you going to do? Yeah, 50K fall. I it, guess does, it's pretty good. I, it does. I just pulled it up. It says a major contributor to this article appears to have a close connection with its subject. <laughs> That's like the biggest exposing ever, dude. It's like this person's so arrogant that they just made it themselves. I swear to God, I didn't make that myself, but I think a fan might have made it. So I think at one, at one point in, the, in my old, like when it first got made, it was like, the girl that made it was like, and his favorite fan, like Emma, made the account, like yeah. <laughs> in like the personal life section. The bio is just a picture of you and Emma at a meet and greet. <laughs> yeah. No, with his best friend and, and biggest source of inspiration, Emma, from well, Wisconsin. You should, uh, you should change that yourself and, and use it as a vision board to say like, and Noah Khan goes on tour with Ariana Grande in 2019. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then her people see it and are like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like I've never toured with this guy, but let me check out his music. 2021 Nobel Peace Award winner, Noah Khan. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, dude. Yeah. So 50K is pretty good, man. I mean, it's, it's free. It's more than I ever thought I'd have. And like, to me, it seems like a lot, but I, I'd really think that if I spent more time on social media, like, did more stories and commented on more things like the algorithm would make it. So I had more followers. Like some, I know artists that let's comment under like big, huge, with the blue check marks so that like brings it to the top of the comment feed at first or whatever. So if you comment under like mm-hmm. a big account, like you get more exposure and people just like naturally follow you. But that's just, just too much for me, man. I just like to post funny stuff if it's funny and like talk about how I'm feeling if I want to. And I think people can kind of relate to that too. And that's kind of a draw on that somebody's not trying too hard, but I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel like honesty goes a long way on Instagram as I've learned because some of my top posts have just been things that I didn't think would perform well or just a picture I thought was shitty, but it was just a brutally honest caption and it gets way more engagement than this perfectly crafted picture that I was waiting for two weeks to drop. And I'm just like... Yeah, 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 for sure. And I think that's like, that's the thing, man. People are all generally feeling similarly. I think no one really, no one wants to take themselves too seriously. And I think it's nice when... Uh, when somebody is able to just like be brutally honest and make a joke about it and poke fun of themselves. Like we were talking about earlier, I think people really connect with that. And, and, you know, that's kind of in my music, what I, what I want to achieve is just, you know, not taking myself seriously, being able to make fun of myself and in doing, and doing that allow other people to, so I think they make fun of themselves and not take themselves too seriously. Yeah. So I think that ties in nicely. I was going to say before, I feel kind of addicted to it in a similar way. I've recently started trying to take breaks from it on days where I'm not posting. So I, I think if I look back on it, I probably post a picture four, maybe five times a week. And so those two days when I'm not posting, I try to just get off it completely, which I'm not always the best at. And then I think I also want to schedule in a week, like once once a year, have a have a week where I'm just not on any social media, like at all costs, just get the fuck away from it. So. We'll Dude, see. It's, it's a real addiction, man. Like I know people that have some friends out in Utah who are specializing in phone addiction, like binge social media behavior, and that like they jet, like, they literally like take kids out into the woods and like make sure they don't have their phones. And, like these kids like have like withdrawals from yeah from from like, the, Dude, it's the, crazy, it's crazy, dude. It's crazy, man. I consider myself lucky that I 
that I didn't grow up with Instagram. I'm 25 now. So I didn't have Facebook until... And you're 23? 22. 22. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of in the same boat. I, I, I don't know when you officially hopped on the social media train, but I don't think I had Facebook until ninth grade, which for me was 2008, maybe? 2009. Uh, yeah, 2008. And then Instagram, I didn't get until college. So I kind of feel bad for these kids that are growing up with it now. And it's kind of rewiring their brain in a terrible way. Yeah, dude. That are, that are just seeing everything through the lens of social media. Yeah, dude. And judging themselves off of like numbers and likes. And also I think it, especially for younger girls and for girls in general, it kind of creates this insane standard of perfection for beauty that just isn't realistic. And I don't think it's even very attractive, but personally, but I think that it sets up the standard for both men and women of having to be perfect and having your highlight reel be exposed all the time and having to live up to that in the real world, which just isn't, isn't logical. And I think it's just a really dangerous precedent for the rest of the rest of kind of the youth of the world to have to deal with is, is this idea of living your life in a unrealistic way on social media and yeah. judging yourself off of likes and judging yourself off of followers. And I've literally heard people say like, Oh dude, this guy only has like 80 followers. Like he must be a loser. I'm like, dude, I, before I started making music, I used to post every three months and it'll be like a grainy fucking photo of me and my friends drinking like switchbacks or something like that. And like, that's, <laughs> that's, it doesn't it doesn't determine Got five thousand likes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Somehow. Yeah, it went viral. Yeah. No, but it it doesn't matter. Like it shit shouldn't matter. It doesn't reflect who you are. And I think it's becoming that it does for kids now. And I think that sucks, dude. That sucks. Yeah. And uh I've had similar experiences with the starting the Instagram for the podcast. When we first started, we were maybe like there were days where there would be three or four people listening, and then sometimes it would spike to like 10 and I'd be like, fuck yeah, like <laughs> yeah, 10 right. people listen to this podcast and we've been fortunate to to build a following and, and talk to cool people like yourself on a regular basis, which definitely helps. But in the beginning, it's basically like you're posting for no one. And if you let that fuck with your head, yeah. then I could see how it could become this endless cycle of just going back for self-gratification. Yeah. And I'm even willing to guess for you and your podcast, it's like, Back in the day, your perspective was different, and you like if you had ten, you were stoked. And now it's probably like if you don't have whatever amount of thousands you usually have, it's like a bad reflects badly on it. Or you're judging yourself based off of like your current listening, and you're always wanting more, and you find yourself not being satisfied with with what you have. Which I think is just that's another thing that social media does. It just keeps kind of lifting your standards and can kind of get to an impossible place. At least for me, you know. I've, yeah, I think like I used to be like stoked if I would get like a hundred likes on a photo, or like someone would comment on my photo. And now I'm like such a lame thing, but I'll be like, oh man, like I didn't get like 45 comments on this Instagram post. Like people don't care about me Let anymore. Let me know which ones. I'll comment right after we're done. Yeah, just comment like 50 <laughs> times. <laughs> like serotonin, serotonin, with all, my, serotonin. with all my fake accounts. <laughs> Dude, come on in, man. I need some of these Russian bots to comment on my my account. Dude, I'm trying to boost my following, man. I don't care if they're fake, dude. It's all about Dude, that sweet serotonin, baby. So to change gears a little bit, I saw that you work regularly with Joel Little. Yeah. Who for people who are listening that are not familiar with Joel, he has worked with Lord Khalid. I just saw he dropped a song with Taylor Swift and Brendan Urie. Yeah. Dude. At the disco. That's that's crazy too. Yeah, he was it's crazy, man. I mean, he's to me is in my opinion is the best producer in the world. Best producer I've ever worked with. He's you know, he's changed pop music. He wrote Royals, he did all pure heroin with Lord. He did American Team with Khalid, which is another amazing record and 
um, you know, it's such a privilege to be able to work with him. And, he's, and what's even better is that he's like the coolest like dude in the yeah. world. He's the nicest guy. And I think that kind of is a big part of what makes him so attractive to, to artists is that he's able to connect with you on a personal level and understand what you're all about uh, musically and just individually as a person. So he's amazing. And um, I'm super happy for him with the Taylor Swift stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's outside, so of the, cool. outside of the personal connection to the artist, what do you think makes him so good in the studio once he's able to build that connection? What, what do you think kind of separates him from other producers or songwriters? I think he's a chameleon, which is so he, he can kind of fit into any genre, any style of music and any vibe, but he can also, but he also brings a very specific kind of individual sound and style to things. So he leaves his mark on each record, um, which is, I think a great producer does is they are able to make it sound like a record that they produced. And when I hear a song, I can tell if Joel's produced it and uh, the sounds he uses and the choices he makes with, and the engineering and the mixing and some, some of the songwriting choices are very signature. And I think that's what makes him so unique and so great is his ability to put his stamp on things and uh, make it so working with him will get you a certain kind of sound. And it, and it kind of, in doing that, expands your own sound and your own understanding of the recording process. So that's what I love about Joel. Is he, just, he sees things in my music that I don't even necessarily see. And I find myself listening and be like, oh, damn, that was a great choice he made. And that's what I think makes him great. Is there an example that stands out to you of one of those times where you maybe didn't see things a certain way in the studio and he made them clear to you either through an adjustment or, or some type of production technique, something like that? Yeah, we were recording um, We were recording the song Passenger and I kind of just wanted to have it go straight through and not be a ton of background vocals. And he, Joel was like, we should do some mms, like some humming stuff that could make it kind of cool. And I was like, I don't know, man. I don't know about how the humming thing's going to go down. I don't want to make it too, you know, kitschy or weird and um we ended up putting him in and i wasn't sure about him and then after i heard him it kind of changed the whole vibe of the song for in a really cool way and made it this really cool like moving beautiful melodic heart and i think that i uh i should have seen i just it was cool to see his vision that i didn't necessarily see before change the song in such a cool way i thought it was really really sweet yeah that is cool i feel like that goes back to some of the insecurity things as well. Like when you're trying something for the first time and you're not sure how it's going to go over, it helps to have someone that can have a third party perspective and say, Hey, maybe you should try this or not do that. Or this is really working right now. You should, you should stick with that. Yeah. And I think that's just the biggest part of being a young person in the music industry. is just being able to learn, being willing to learn and not thinking that, you know, everything. I think, I always went in with this idea of like, I'm going to learn from these people and I'm going to take their advice because they're here for a reason. In doing that, I've kind of been able to learn a bunch of new things about music and approach things in a more unique way and try new things, not be afraid to fail or have it sound weird because at least you're trying it. So yeah, it definitely goes into that insecurity of being afraid to, to change or being afraid to do something that you don't think is going to be great. But yeah, like I said, just going for it can open up a whole new avenue for a song. Without selling anybody out, are there any experiences in the studio that you've had that kind of define a, a bad studio experience or something where there was just complete disconnect and you couldn't move past it? I think sometimes people want... I've, I've had a couple experiences where folks are feeling like they're not getting... I'm not singing with enough emotion or they'll be like, you can just sing with emotion, like really feel what's going on and that kind of pressure to feel something actually brings me out of the space of the song. So that's happened a couple of times. I've never had like a really awful experience. I've had some times where the producer and I have disagreed on vocal takes 
And in the end, it, you know, it's going to be my song. So I want to make sure I have the vocal take that I like and going, leaving with a vocal take you don't like, or a section you don't like, cause you felt like you were pressured into it is, is a shitty feeling. So I've had that a couple of times, but nothing, nothing really crazy or severe. You know, I always, I always feel like most, most really great producers will hear, will, will, will trust the artist's vision for their own, for their own voice. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's something too that could be applied outside of just songwriting sessions. I, I've heard so many artists talk about what makes a good songwriting session and what makes a bad songwriting session. And it seems like it can be a form of therapy and, and this, you know, extremely vulnerable state where you walk in to a stranger's room a lot of the times and then you're expected to just open up to someone and create a song and, and get it all done. And it could be sometimes in under a day, maybe five or six hours. So it's like, uh, it seems very intimidating to have to open up that quickly or have someone else try to break you down to get through to the real raw emotions. Dude, it's so weird. And that's, that's why I really struggle when it's like, oh, you're doing this big session with this guy. Like you'll never, I've never met this guy before. He's had a bunch of hits and the precedent is that I'm going to go in and in order to keep writing this guy, I have to write a hit. It's just this really crazy pressure. And then, and you don't feel like you can really open up to somebody like that, if that, with that expectation and that pressure on you. Uh, and it can be weird. And a lot of times, like I'm driving out to like Malibu to some dude's mansion and you walk into a mansion and you're supposed to write a song, and tell this guy about how you're feeling in your life when you don't even know him and you're sitting in this huge house in this weird place you've never been. So I think being comfortable enough to open up is such an important part about songwriting sessions. And it can be really intimidating, but I think what, what makes it worth it is when you are, when you do open up and the other person understands how you're feeling or has maybe felt it before too. And you can write something honest and true. And uh, that's what makes songwriting sessions so great. But occasionally you have that one where you feel like you can't open up to the person or that you don't feel like there's a sense of kind of, I don't know, there's a weird power balance in the room where you don't feel like you can be honest with them and which can make it really hard and shitty. So it can go both ways, man. Yeah, exactly. If your first experience is, is driving up to a mansion and pressing the intercom to open the gate and, yeah. then driving, in the, and driving another three miles to the front door. Yeah, and then it's like, now write about your small town beginnings with this guy. He'll relate to it. It's like, no, he won't. This dude is a fucking Tesla, bro. I'm riding a, driving a Subaru, Subaru Outback 09. I'm not going to relate to this guy yeah. at all. Uh, but well, that's what's cool. A lot of the times you find that these people have had have, have this success because they've been able to do the same thing. And, uh, you know, the mansion can put you off a little bit, but usually most songwriters are pretty down to earth people. I think you got to be down to earth and grounded yeah. to do the job because otherwise you're not going to say things that regular folks like us in the world can relate to. Yeah, well, I, I would imagine growing up in... Vermont would foster a connection to nature when you're songwriting. So a mansion in the hills is probably opposite. I would imagine opposite of what inspired you as a kid growing up. Yeah, absolutely. I think being here in Vermont where I'm here right now, what's great for me is I'm able to kind of write down these ideas and be inspired in this space. And then usually what I do is I'll bring, you know, like almost half finished ideas to these songwriting sessions in LA, New York and Nashville. That way I'm not feeling like I have to be inspired by immediate surroundings because cities just don't really inspire me as much. I don't know. I just don't, mm-hmm. there's something just too crowded and claustrophobic about it. And that can inspire its own kind of songwriting, but I feel most comfortable in a rural place coming up with ideas. I feel most comfortable in my house here in Stratford writing ideas down. I'm talking to you from Brooklyn, New York. So I'm almost in the heart of New York City. I'm about three or four subway stops away. But I think that the city and nature are two different types of inspiration. And I've never lived for a long period of time in somewhere that's away from 
the big city like NYC. Yeah. But when I when I'm in the city, it's more of an inspiration derived from competition where you see everyone else is hustling and you feel the need to make something of yourself and it kind of just like scares the laziness out of you for sure in a way like it makes you not feel like you're worth something unless you're doing something yeah that's, and then, that's true that's true that's true yeah sure. and then when i go out into nature i went a couple times last year to visit my friend out in denver and we've gone snowboarding hiking multiple times and that Dude. whole trip and that whole city in general is surrounded by nature and and people are extremely active there so it's like this different type of vibe where yeah, you want to get away from shit yeah, no, I totally feel you, actually, man. I actually do agree. I think there are different types of inspiration in different places. And I agree that when I'm in LA or if I'm in New York, I do. I feel like, yeah, I need to be hustling because my community, my peers are people that are hustling really hard. Um, and that kind of creates a drive and an energy to inspiration. And then you can come out to Vermont or go to Denver, like you said, and you can take inspiration from the nature and kind of from the lack of hustle, I think, can provide inspiration too. So I think that both are important. I, and I try to keep a balance where I'm not... If I spend too much time out here, I start to go fucking crazy like The Shining and I start to get lazy. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I go to the city and then I kind of get the drive and then I escape from that and the escape is inspiring. Yeah, I think, I think I'll draw inspiration from wherever I am. And cities have a different type of energy to them for sure. Yeah, it's like a balancing act. That's why I'm so jealous of my friend that lives out in Denver because I love snowboarding and hiking, but it's kind of, it's not too far. You could go hiking about... 30 minutes to an hour outside of NYC, but then snowboarding. I usually go up to Okemo or Killington. Oh, word, yeah. In, in Vermont, yeah. I go to Killington, I, I, Okemo every year. Yeah, I, uh, I recently got the Epic Pass this past year. So Killington was my, or not Killington, Okemo was my spot because they're on the Epic Pass. And that's uh, that was like my go-to weekend getaway. Just go out there, snowboard. Did you get out a bunch? Shit. Was it worth it for you, the Epic Pass? I was thinking about getting, I'm just not fucking home enough, dude. Yeah, dude, it was because I think it's 600 for unlimited at Okemo and a few other Northeast spots. And then you have 10 days out in a bunch of spots around Denver, like Vail, Breckenridge, that are unbelievable resorts. And then uh, you also have 10 days out in places like Park City. I went out to Park City for a week and a pass there is about $200 a day. I think it starts at 180. It's crazy. But I, I had the Epic Pass, which is covered. So that saves me almost $1,200 just in passes alone. And then you could go to Canada. You could go to Japan for 10 days, which is crazy. Oh, it's on the Japanese, Epic Pass. They have Japanese mountains on there? Yeah, that's what I've heard. Oh, shit, dude. Maybe I should get the Epic Pass. The problem is whenever I, I'm on tour and I'm in a city where I want to like go snowboarding, my band's always like, dude, you're going to hurt your hands. You can't go. I'm like, dude, I grew, I grew up skiing. It's fun. I'm fine. I'll be fine. So I want I want to get out more this year. Smoke some weed in the gondola at Killington. That's classic. Go out with some yeah. boys. I go. I just, I just mostly ski around Vermont, dude. It's just easier for me, and it's I'm so close. But like you said, it's crazy. It's like I'll spend like a hundred dollars to go out one day, and then that doesn't include the cost of like food and booze and shit. So it's it's tough, man. I like going around to the different resorts because I feel like each one has a different vibe. Like I don't know if you've you've experienced the same thing, but I think Killington is definitely more of a party vibe. Like when I go yeah. out there, people. Are seem to be younger, like around our age, and want to get fucked up. And then Okemo is more of like a family spot, oh, not as a many places to go spot. out. Yeah, yeah. So it's like I get on the gondola in Killington, and the dude's passing me a little fifth of bullet bourbon. It's like, yo, you want some? And I'm like, yeah, Fuck, yeah. Like, All right. And then I, <laughs> I'm like, sure, let's do this. And then you go to Okemo, and it's a family of four getting on the gondola. 
Maybe it's passing the LaCroix. Would, yeah. <laughs> would, you like, would you like a little sip of this fresco or yeah. LaCroix? You want some kombucha, Are you dude? orange or yeah. lime guy? <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. I like, I like the differing vibe in different places. I skied out. It's cool to go out like out west. Like For me, I'm obviously from the northeast, but I'll visit my buddies in Salt Lake City. Um, and I'll go skiing out there. I've, I've gone skiing in Aspen before. It's just a like, totally different scene out there. Even like the mountains are different, which is cool. And it's crazy. It's like you don't get a lot of like powder shit out in Vermont as much as you do out in like backwoods, backcountry skiing, Colorado. It's, it's crazy different. Mm-hmm. So it's cool to get kind of, a, kind of both sides of the both sides. Of yeah. The- so I know we're coming up here on time and I want to give you a chance to talk about your upcoming album, Busy Head. Uh, so yeah. I know that you've said it's pretty much your life's work. And there are a bunch of songs that you've written since you started writing music that are going to appear on this album. I think it's five songs that are already out and then five new ones. Yeah. What was the creative process like leading up to this album? It was kind of just a long, it was a long process of figuring out which songs were the best. It was kind of a best song win situation and we... And uh, I tried to I try to write every song in this in kind of with a certain prose and try to make it so every song could fit in a record together. But these songs I would write this I would write a song and then I'd beat it and then we find another song that kind of fit to the concept more. So it wasn't like growing in to write a record. It was more just trying to write great songs and the singles presented themselves and then the songs we thought should be album tracks kind of presented themselves and mm-hmm. we were all kind of just in, a, in agreement that the song the new songs we have were just the ones that fit the concept most and feel the most cohesive. How many songs do you think you had as possible slots for this project? I think I wrote in the past three years, maybe 200 songs, maybe, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. And That's out of those, crazy. yeah, so a lot of songs, I totally fucking burnt myself out on it too, but uh, I think it was worth it in the long run. So we had wrote a lot of songs, we kind of narrowed them down and we cut demos of, of a few of them. And then I think we probably had like 30 songs that we were all like, all right, these could be on the record. Which ones do we want to do? Which ones speak to the concept more? Manoa, which ones do you connect with the most? You know, which ones do we think could be the most successful commercially? And we just pick from there. And I think we ended up with a list of of songs that we really are proud of and are the best representation of the work I've been doing for the past few years. I like that approach, though. I, I was actually just listening to a podcast and they mentioned the prolific approach of some of the most iconic creatives like Shakespeare and Mozart. And it's not that they were the most talented creators, even though they they all were extremely talented, but they were also the most prolific in terms of pumping out quantities of works of art. So they gave themselves much more chances to succeed. So I'd imagine going into an album where you're going to release 10 songs, it's a good thing that you're narrowing it down from 200 or sometimes even more, I would guess, because it's like not everything that you're going to create is going to be packaged and released. So it gives you that option of picking and choosing what you think is your best. Yeah, man. And like your songwriting is a muscle, man. So you, the more you practice it, the better it will get. And I think writing every day is so important because you can kind of whittle out the shitty stuff and after a while, after a bunch of tries and a bunch of sessions, something great will come. And so having a bunch of songs to pick from is good because it makes the really, really good ones stand out and it brings the best out of you creatively. So yeah, I agree that being prolific is super important. That's something I've always, I always prided myself on is you know having a lot of material to choose from and feeling like I'm not stuck with four songs or trying to beat one song. I'm always just trying to write 
the best song I can each day when I go into a session. So yeah, I'm, I'm stoked that we that we chose that approach to it for sure. Yeah, I've I've been inspired by other music artists like yourself, hearing how you know songwriting is sort of this muscle where you're trying to enhance it each day, even if you feel like shit or you you have writer's block or you just don't think much of yourself that day to try to write something down. I've tried to take a similar approach with podcasting where, you know, if I, even if I feel like shit or, you know, I'm not in the right headspace to try to schedule them regularly. Cause if I go a few days or a week without recording something, then I start to question my own ability to have conversations. Yeah. Even though I've had thousands That's of conversations. I'm like, well, I even know how to talk to this person today. Like Dude, I haven't I'm- done something in four days. <laughs> I've literally never had to think about that, but yeah, it must be crazy for podcasting, man. Cause you gotta, yeah, you gotta make it an interesting conversation and it's crazy. Cause you're like putting like this added pressure on what should be like a really natural thing. So that must be kind of, that must be kind of crazy. Do you ever feel like you have like podcasting block? Is that, is that a thing? Not really. I, I think sometimes I just hype myself up way too much for the conversation. The, the approach that I think makes me the most comfortable is doing as much research as I can on each guest and taking that extremely seriously. But then once the conversation starts to just let the research and the questions that you've created kind of go casually into the conversation, like don't too, yeah. don't put too much pressure on the conversation, like put pressure on the preparation, but then the actual conversation, whatever it is, it is. If I was trying to talk to like, if I knew I was talking to someone that I really liked or looked up to, I feel like I would approach it with like a kind of a tension or a weirdness. And I think that conversation is, it's one of the easiest things to pick up tension is in, in a conversation. So uh, it must be, I must be crazy. And I don't, I don't think I could do it. I ramble way too much, dude. Yeah, like it, it makes it easier because I don't like you at all. So that's why it's been flowing so yeah, naturally. That's how I've gotten this vibe from you that like, <laughs> since I know you don't care about my music and think my record's going to flop, that it's just been like a really easy chat. So man, I really appreciate your pre- preparation for this yeah. one for sure. Well, I'm actually having this conversation from Serbia. I lied <laughs> yeah. about Brooklyn. <laughs> and I just came over myself. So we're ready to <laughs> yeah, go. <laughs> yeah. So that, me- that means we're out of time, folks. <laughs> all right. We'll finish it there. <laughs> But yeah, no, I uh, I think that is a a great spot to finish. And by the time this podcast comes out, Busy Head will be out June fourteenth, I believe, is yes, the, the drop date. So yeah, June fourteenth, Noah Khan. Go listen to Busy Head, or else, or else, yes. Or, or what are you going to do to people that don't listen to Busy Head? I wish a plague upon your fucking crops, and I hope that every single time you eat. Something with sour cream in it. The sour cream's just fucking been gone rotten and it tastes like shit every single time. And you can never have the satisfaction of eating a normal tasting sour cream again. Wow. That was very specific. I like that. Yeah. You can tell there's a little bit of trauma in my life with sour cream. That is yeah, so I was, was going to say bad <laughs> experience that at your Chipotle or something. <laughs> yeah. That'll be yeah, for yeah. another uh, therapy session. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to see it. You got to so see want, an expert about talk? that. Yeah. What do you want to talk about today? Sour cream. Uh, sour cream. Oh shit! Here we go. You're third person this week. <laughs> well, uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I want to thank you again for taking the time to have this conversation. I really do appreciate it, and I enjoy these talks a lot because, like I was saying before, it's kind of a therapy thing for me too. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for yeah. It's been been a blast to talk to you, dude. I appreciate your questions and your honesty and uh, the connection, man. So thanks for hyping it up. 